Hello, this is Duran Ornstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Today, I am here with the great saxophonist, recording artist, composer, educator, Ricky Swum. And Ricky recently released an incredible CD called Pulling Your Own Strings on Origin Records. He's an official artist and endorser of P. Moriat saxophones, and he's the jazz ensemble director at Colorado College. He's toured nationally and internationally with The Sound of Music, as well as the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. He's played with folks like Jerry Gibbs, Clark Terry, James Moody, John Hendricks, Terry Gibbs. And now he plays lead tenor with the Air Force Academy Band and tours the country playing for over a million people each year. So, howdy, Ricky. How's it going? (laughs) It's going well. Cool, cool. So, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, I guess, you know, you live in, uh, you're in Colorado right now, Colorado Springs. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with music these days and anything else we should know about you in the way of an intro? (laughs) Well, uh, what I'm doing musically, I guess, uh, let me tell you a little bit where I came from in order to tell you where I'm at now. Uh, After uh, high school growing up in, in Oregon, uh, which actually is a very rich place musically. It was for me, at least when I was growing up there in the late 80s, early 90s, all kinds of great players came from there and are still there today. Very rich place. And um, I moved out to the East Coast and uh, went to William Patterson for a little bit out there in Wayne, New Jersey, and then moved to uh, New York City and did my best to um, make it as a musician there. And um, I will say that New York was the greatest experience that I had musically, um, both in a positive and negative way. And uh, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, But uh, I found myself having incredible experiences musically there and also going through periods of time New York just kind of got the best of me and I ended ended up really not doing much musically at all. And uh, uh, after a 10 year period of of kind of going ups and downs there in New York, um, I was looking for other options and it had always been a dream of mine as probably most young musicians who want to dedicate themselves to music. they want to support themselves. They want to be able to um, be a professional musician. And I guess I never really knew what that meant to me when I was younger and when I was in New York. And I was always kind of content my time in New York playing gigs that didn't really pay much money or actually in many cases paid no money. uh, just for the sake of, of being an artist, um, you know, it was very musically fulfilling in many ways. Um, but financially, I never 
uh, really made the connection to be able to support myself, uh, which was super frustrating. Um, the only times I really had success supporting myself in New York was leaving New York. I'd have to join, you know, either a Broadway tour or, or some sort of a show band that would that would tour around the nation or around the, the world and kind of took me away from New York. And I always wanted to be able to live in New York and support myself doing music solely. And, you know, of course there are people that are very successful at doing that, but my experience, that just wasn't the case. So after being there 10 years, sort of frustrated that I wasn't able to really support myself musically, I was looking into other options and uh, was checking the uh, union newspaper one time and looked in the back and saw an ad. And these ads were frequently there, but I just was kind of blind to it in the past and it was just the right time for me to, to see this. It was an ad for uh, an Air Force band and it had a big old fat salary on there and I'm like, whoa, that getting paid that as a musician, well, I wonder what that means to be a military musician. And sent away for the package and learned about the audition and all that and practiced really hard for what the requirements were for the audition and um, went out and uh, won a job in the Air Force Band. And that's taken me, uh, I've been in almost eight years now and I'm living uh, in Colorado working for the Air Force Academy band. And um, so when you ask me where I'm at musically now, um, I am supporting myself as a full-time musician. And it feels really good to be able to do that. Um, and not just support myself, but to support a whole family. Uh, another thing that uh, just wasn't even a, a part of my consciousness back when I was living in New York because of the struggle of, you know, just trying to get by, support myself, let alone the whole family. And it feels really good as a musician uh, being able to do that. And uh, the Air Force has been able to facilitate that for me. What else comes with that? Of course, I have all my musical duties that I uh, have for uh, the Air Force, but uh, the other fringe benefit is being able to uh, have the time and the resources uh, to be able to pursue my own musically fulfilling creative projects that I do outside of uh, the Air Force. And that's another thing that was always kind of problematic for me in, in New York because I, I would go through periods of time where uh, you know, I was in such a survival mode, just trying to have enough money to pay the rent. <laughs> but a lot of times my head wasn't in the in the creative space that I wanted it to be in. I, I know a lot of people thrive creatively, creatively thrive uh, uh, when they're going through tough times. But uh, I think me, that's one thing I've learned about myself is uh, I tend to be more creative when um, I feel secure. <laughs> so I'm in a good position uh, musically. I, um, and that kind of sums, sums that up.
Very cool. Yeah, uh, you're right about that. A lot of people need that uh, fear of you know failure to <laughs> keep them going. So. Um, you know, what they say a lot of times is if you have any doubt about whether or not you should be a musician, that means you should not be a professional musician. That's kind of the cliche that I was brought up with. Um, did you find yourself ever having doubts or considering different, like a different line of full-time work as you were coming up to become a musician? Oh, goodness, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a fair amount of students now, and I, I have uh, some very talented students, some that have gone on to, uh, well, let's just say many of them are professional now, and um, lots of them have gone on to colleges, really great musical colleges, and, and I oftentimes will recommend to them, I say, um, I, know, I know you're passionate about this, but um, um, uh, the true test of your passion will be once you're out of school and you're having to worry about supporting yourself and uh, paying off whatever debts you may have incurred through your education. <laughs> and um, a lot of times I'll just, I'll recommend to them, like, if they're not 100% sure that they want to try it out as being a professional musician, I strongly advise going to school and studying um, something that will give them more assurance of receiving a high-paying job um, and keeping music in uh, in the background of their studies. Um, I think music is, is a beautiful thing in that um, it can stay with us for our entire lifetime and it's never too late to begin and of course never too early and, and most people who are into music have been doing it their whole life up to the point that I see them as students and there's not a doubt in my mind that it won't always be in their life but um, I think a lot of younger people have to they, they they kind of generalize it in their mind very black and white in that they feel that they have to decide oh, I'm going to be a professional musician and nothing else. Either that or, oh, I'm just going to give up music because I'll never make it as a musician. And I don't believe that that is the way it needs to be. And the advice that I give to my students that aren't 100% sure that they want to do it, uh, to me, I, I just say, well, um, don't worry about giving up music. It's always going to be there. Just go off and get a job that's going to pay you really well, and then you will be able to afford music in whatever capacity that you want um, for the rest of your life, either studying lessons or going out and watching concerts and um, having the best CD collection, uh, jazz CD collection in your block, in your neighborhood. Um, uh, that, that's the way I see it. So, so me personally... Um, yeah, I, my my time in New York, as I was saying earlier, I, I really was faced uh, with that question on, on a daily basis because uh, the amount of time that I put into playing my instrument always felt unfair to me because here, even as a young 20-something, when, when I was in New York, 
uh, I'd already put in more hours and years into developing my craft as a musician than most brain surgeons had. And, and yet the society that we live in uh, rewards their, their skill set with um, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, on an annual basis. And, and there just aren't very many opportunities to make that kind of money as as a jazz musician in our society. So I always felt I always felt like uh, I was doing the wrong thing to be financially secure by choosing to be a musician. So I, yes, I was constantly thinking of other ways, but there was never a doubt in my mind that music would always be a part of my life, uh, even though. I kind of went through some periods of time where it really wasn't in the forefront of my mind. Um, it was always there in the back, and, and I always trusted that a time in my life would be more conducive to uh, pursuing it more fully. So, yeah, I guess the the sum of, of all of that that I just said is uh, you don't need to be black and white about it. You don't have to think to yourself, well, I'm going to be a musician or I'm not going to be a musician. You know, there's some great people here in the community that I live in um, that they don't consider themselves professional full-time musicians, and yet they're some of the best players uh, in the area. And, and they, they play on the weekends or they play at night. And it's a perfectly viable way of being a musician by having a job doing something else and, and in, in a lot of ways that might might be more advantageous to you because you're able to support yourself um, one of the best bass players in town here is a, a physical therapist by day and uh, by night he turns into a, <laughs> a really great bass player so uh, that's the way I see it very cool very cool. So I wanted to jump into the more saxophone-specific stuff, shifting gears a tiny bit. Um, yeah. And I noticed on your album you're using a guitar instead of, uh, you know, a lot of times you hear the piano in the, in the jazz quartet. And I noticed that you and the guitar player played exceptionally well together. There's a lot of unison uh, sax and guitar lines. And one thing I noticed you do really well that a lot of new players struggle with is playing in tune. <laughs> um, you guys played as one instrument and your intonation was just so rock solid. And I was wondering if there's anything that you did, um, you know, that you continue to do to practice that specific skill of intonation. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, it's funny you should say that because um, it's always on my mind. Intonation is just... Uh, something that uh, I think comes more naturally to others <laughs> and I, I view myself as, as one that has to pay particular attention to it uh, otherwise it kind of gets away from me and uh, uh, I will have to say that when I lived in New York I really didn't think about intonation it wasn't really a part of my musical vocabulary I just kind of had my mouthpiece on my neck at all times and uh, it was stuck in the same place and I'd put a read on and I'd start playing and um, unless I was playing in a really cold environment where the, just 
really threw the intonation off. Um, it was just something I wasn't really ever conscious of. And I think a lot of that had to do with the context that I was playing in, um, playing mostly in small group situations where you're really not having to tune with very many instruments, maybe a bass player or a piano player. And a lot of the places that I would play in, the pianos were pretty much always out of tune. So you kind of learned to tune out poor intonation because you just assumed that um, uh, it would be off a little bit. And, and also there's a little bit of that jazz mentality of like, well, Thelonious Monk always sounded uh, out of tune on his piano, so, and that was cool, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jackie McLean, it was cool to be out of tune. So, um, uh, it, like I said, it wasn't something that was really on my mind all that much. Now, eight years ago, when I joined the Air Force Band, um, I wasn't only asked to play in a jazz context, I was being asked to play in the concert band context as well, and that was something I hadn't done uh, in easily 10 years, if not 11, 12, maybe 13 years. So it was uh, a really, it had to be a quick learning experience for me, and I hadn't been asked to play in tune with that type of attention in that uh, period of time. So. Um, I paid a whole lot of attention on, okay, what do I need to do to uh, fix the intonation problems that I have? And uh, I found that just being asked to play in that context with a whole lot of other people where intonation all of a sudden was one of the most key components to whether you sounded good or not, um, drawing that type of attention to it um, helped considerably. So. There's all kinds of things out there that help a lot with intonation, and uh, I could share some of those with you that I that I uh, worked on myself and that I give to my students now. Um, yeah, if you want to throw one or two tips or techniques in there, that would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, one thing that I didn't really realize. Um, and it makes a whole lot of sense to me now. Um, and this comes from the Joe Allard concept. Uh, Joe Allard was a, a great teacher of saxophonists and clarinet players. Um, I think he lived in the Boston area. Um, he's no longer alive, but a, a lot of great players studied with him. A lot of jazz musicians, um, such as Joe Henderson, Michael Brecker, Dave Liebman, uh, Steve Grossman, those those types of jazz musicians, and then a few classical players um, as well. And one guy um, that I got to study with when I lived in Texas for a few years, that was my first assignment when I joined the Air Force, um, uh, Harvey Patel, he's a saxophone professor there at uh, UT Austin. He was uh, a longtime student of Joe Allard, and um, one of the few classical um, students of Joe Allen to kind of continue his legacy on. And one of these basic concepts comes that um, the saxophone mouthpiece um, and the reed setup, the, the number one goal that you want to achieve to, to get as big a sound as possible is you want this free-blowing approach where 
that basically means is you don't want to inhibit the vibration of the reed. And um, that's something you'll see in a fair amount of saxophone players, usually more beginning types, and uh, you'll see it with a lot of uh, classical players that kind of approach the embouchure in a different setup where they're applying pressure all around um, the reed. Um, a lot of clarinet players who start on clarinet where they play with this incredibly tight embouchure that switch over to saxophone, they're, they're just uh, they're tightening the reed with their embouchure. They're making it too uh, tight. They're kind of biting up on the reed. And what that does is you're inhibiting the flow, the vibration of the reed, and inhibiting the, the flow of air past, past the reed as well. And this whole concept that uh, I'm into is just barely holding on. I mean, you want to have your top teeth on the mouthpiece, and um, you do want to create a seal, but um, you don't want any upward pressure on the reed at all. Um, just enough to be able to um, not have air escape. What that does is it enables the reed to vibrate at maximum potential. And uh, so how does intonation play into this whole thing? And first thing you'll notice is that if you if your tendency on your embouchure is to bite at all and, and you relieve, relieve all that pressure on the embouchure, is that your pitch tends to drop down lower. And on the saxophone, um, I have found, this is my own personal opinion, but I find that almost everyone agrees with me, is that I almost think I could go so far to say that it's, it's human nature, it's almost a universal truth that the ear, the human ear is more accepting of a pitch that is sharp over a pitch that is flat. And, uh, you know, think about it. It's brighter. Um, if you're sharp, it it's, has a brighter quality, which, you know, human nature, I think, tends to enjoy brightness over over darkness. Uh, flatness, if a note's flat and out of tune, it tends to sound a whole lot worse to me than if it's sharp. Um, so think about that on saxophone. If you're blowing on the reed and you're not biting at all because you want that maximum reed vibration, um, your pitch is going to go down ever so slightly. So what you need to do is you need to compensate by pushing your mouthpiece in more so that um, it, it kind of sharpens your instrument. And I think what you need to do is you need to be intimate enough with your instrument to know where the flat notes are. And yes, there's techniques you can do to vent um, certain notes to bring the pitch up. Um, but you need to know where the flat notes are on your instrument and you need to push your mouthpiece in enough so that those notes are in tune with a, this free-blowing embouchure. What that's going to do is, with the rest of your notes that may, may be on the sharper side, is that it's going to make them very sharp, okay? But at least we have the capability as saxophone players to drop pitch. And by dropping pitch, um, it's very easy to drop pitch, but 
much harder to raise pitch. And think about it, in order for us to raise pitch on the saxophone, we have to bite, we have to constrict that reed a little bit, and that is going to um, kind of give us more of a stuffy, duller sound. Uh, we want that more open, uh, full reed vibration sound. So you have to tune your instrument sharp, and you have to get used to playing with this lowered um, kind of pitch center, or this lower, lowered uh, jaw. Uh, and there's a great exercise to, to get into this. Um, I call them E-yaws, because that's what you're going to say. You're going to say E-yaw, E-yaw. Now, if you just do that, um, and you put your hand under your chin, and you say E-yaw, E-yaw. If you do that with me, you'll notice that your jaw drops down in the yaw position. E-yaw, E-yaw. And it's that yaw position that you want to blow the air in uh, through the mouthpiece because that's pulling your teeth and your lips away from the reed so that it is going to uh, have more free blow. Now, here's the, here's the exercise, the, this yaw exercise. I think it's easiest to start. It doesn't matter what you're playing, E-flat or B-flat uh, saxophones. Uh, start on your middle B and finger it and just um, blow and then finger down to a B flat, down a half step, and then back up to the B. And just blow that. So da 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 da. And what that does is it sets those pitches, that half step um, lower pitch into your ear. That's step number one. Step number two is to finger the B and blow the air through, and then achieve the half step lower B flat, and then back up to the B without fingering B flat. So you're going to achieve a B natural, and then whip it down to the B flat, and then back up to the B natural without actually even, even fingering it, uh, the B flat. You're only fingering the B natural, and you're doing all of this by lowering your jaw and saying those syllables, E-I-E, all right? That's step number two. And what you want to do, so along with this step number two, is do it as slowly as possible. So it'd be like, E-I-E. And that's going to exercise. It's going to uh, strengthen and help make all those little subtle muscles that are in your oral cavity and larynx, it's going to strengthen all those and make them more flexible in order to be able to have control over dropping pitch like that. Step number three is to do the same as number two, except where you're going to do um, it as rapidly as you can. And maybe start a little bit slow, but then um, speed it up as fast as you can and see how many reps you can get in there. So, And this is all done in one breath. So step three would be you finger the B, and then you lift it down to the B flat, back up to the B, down to the B flat, back up to the B, as quickly as you can. So it'd be like, okay? And so it's the same as step number two, only you're doing it much quicker. And what that does is, uh, it's like 
step number two is kind of like a uh, a warm up, and step number three is kind of a sprint, and it just uh, exercises and strengthens in, in a different way. So that's the routine I would do, like steps uh, one through three, uh, a couple times on that note, and then I would do it in different registers. You know, up the octave put the octave key down and do the whole same routine and then do it down the octave as well. This tends to be more challenging and the most challenging on the saxophone down in the low register, but it helps you develop incredible control and um, it enables you to develop the ability to lower your pitch with your embouchure um, so that, remember, we're tuning our instrument to the flattest note, and what that does is it tends to raise the pitch everywhere. And this EI exercise is training us to be able to feel very comfortable lowering pitch. And uh, uh, I would recommend doing that on a different note every day. And um, once you feel very comfortable doing a half step, increase the interval to a whole step. And do that through the whole range of the instrument. And then increase the interval to a minor third. And do that through the whole instrument. And um, this is the type of thing that uh, we will learn eventually that we can, we can do this pretty much like a whole octave lower on certain notes on the instrument. And what that tells me is that there's a whole universe of uh, pitch possibilities by lowering pitch on the saxophone. And, and, and yet, if we ask someone to raise the pitch on their instrument, on their saxophone, um, using their embouchure, uh, there's very little flexibility there before the reed just closes off and shuts down and doesn't even speak anymore. So I believe an exercise like this develops our ability to lower pitch and um, and that's one thing that I think about with intonation. Um, the other thing that I would recommend for intonation practice is uh, I had a teacher uh, one time give me this tape that he recorded using a, a keyboard, and the keyboard was uh, in 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 tune and. He would spend, you make this play long track that was about uh, three minutes per key center. And so it had every key center on there, 12 tracks. And the first key, say, was the key of B flat. Uh, what he did on his keyboard is he played roots, like maybe an octaves, and then, and then maybe some fourths and fifths in there as well. And they, they were just pads, just patches that kind of went on for about three minutes each. And and you can practice along with that. Um, you know, a lot of people will play with a tuner, and that has its place, but I think a better skill to develop is you have to hear, you have to learn how to tune to other things, as opposed to just hearing yourself and then looking at the tuner and seeing whether you're sharp or flat and then trying to adjust. Because um, that, to me, doesn't really develop the ear in the same way as, um, always hearing yourself in relation to a key center. And, and um, 
you can very easily make make a a tape a tuning tape for yourself just by playing these different roots and putting the fours and fives in there um, gives you some other reference points to hear how your your pitch is uh, in tune related to those notes. And I would play through that tape uh, just playing roots. Um, once you've done roots, go ahead and tune your fourths and, and hear how the, the fourths sound in relation to the roots. And, um, and then play fives and play major thirds. And I mean, you can play your scales that way. And, and it's really um, when you approach practicing saying, I want to develop my intonation in such a way, um, and that is solely what you focus on, I think it can develop uh, very rapidly. But you have to have the flexibility to be able to tune, and that's where the, the first exercise of EI exercises come into play. And, and because if you hear that you're out of tune, but you can't move, then um, it does you no good. I mean, most people, it just kind of makes me chuckle when I go to a clinic at a high school or a middle school or even colleges and, and they do a tuning note and uh, they all tune to like a concert A or a concert B flat and, and uh, you see, they'll play their note and then you see the students like pulling their mouthpiece out or pushing it in and uh, or the band director will say, oh, you need to pull out or you need to push in and uh, I feel that the way that I have developed myself using these exercises I just uh, I just said there's there's very little adjustment um, because the adjustment should be internal um, through your oral cavity by um, you know through the ER dropping your pitch uh, lowering your lowering your pitch and that's all very subtle fine motor skills that are in your oral cavity that have to be developed that way so. I don't believe intonation comes from uh, pulling the mouthpiece out or in, unless you're in, a, in an extreme environment where it's really cold or really hot, then, then I think you need to make a move. But that's, uh, that's my thought on intonation. <laughs> <laughs> wow, no, that's uh, super helpful. That's, you've definitely got some uh, perspectives I haven't heard uh, with that, but it totally makes sense. So. Thank you very much for that. Um, just moving right along, I know you got your time's a bit limited, but one thing I wanted to ask you was um, moving over to the jazz and improvisation end of things was um, when you play in a small group like the quartet on your album, is there any yeah is there any one thing that you're paying attention to more than anything else like anything you're listening to anything that's in your consciousness like do you find yourself listening to the drums the most or the, the bass or the whole musical picture or maybe listening to yourself? What is it you're focusing on the most while you're playing in a small group? Oh man, that's, that's a really good question and a really difficult one to, to answer uh, because it really depends on where my headspace is in that moment. Um, sometimes what I'll attempt to do is um, uh, I call it road mapping. Um, when I'm in a studio environment, um, particularly, I do a lot of work with big bands, and um, I've done some recording, and I find the big band is kind of a different world in that uh, 
solo spaces is more prescribed. It might be a very limited amount of space, and and so a lot of times I will kind of roadmap, uh, and I use that term in in the sense that if you're doing a road trip to a, a specific place and you need to you want to get there in a in a in a in an efficient manner, you want to kind of pre-plan the route you want to take there, or say you need to pick up some groceries and then you need to run an errand and so you need to make kind of a zigzag motion. Um, you know, if you want to avoid bad traffic or avoid construction, you know, you want to do a little research and kind of pre-plan that stuff. You want to create a roadmap for yourself. Um, and I find that sometimes I'll take that approach where I'll have particular sounds that I, I want to put into a solo or if there's a particular idea that um, I really like playing in a, in a situation or a certain tune, um, uh, I'll want to use certain musical devices. I'll, I'll kind of have those in my mind that I'll want to incorporate those in there. Um, other times I'll approach, and, and I tend to be this way much more in live situations where uh, it's more fun to just not think about anything um, and just see what happens. And uh, it's always the goal of the improviser to have kind of worked on enough stuff that uh, you can literally not really be having anything pre-planned and you can trust that through everything that you've worked on in the past, uh, something logical will present itself uh, through the inspiration of the moment. And um, it really depends on what's inspiring me in the moment. I, the particular recording of Pulling Your Own Strings, um, that CD project, I think there were a couple tunes on there where I developed a, a very rough roadmap, you know, a couple sounds. Um, like there's a few kind of open, open chord sections on there where it's really fun to, to put certain types of sounds over chords and um, I knew I wanted to work those in there, but I wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I, that was just kind of my goal, to get that in there harmonically, but it was through uh, that moment in time and space that uh, I found that inspiration. And <laughs> I, I can't really replay that for you because I, I don't recall it. It's just that was the mo that moment in time. And, um, now, all of that being said, I would have to tell you that I find incredible amounts of inspiration through uh, drummers in particular. Uh, I love the rhythmic aspect of music and uh, um, I find a lot of inspiration through just playing with a drummer, um, like trying to have a conversation with them, so to say. And it, I might hear some little rhythmic thing that they do and uh, that might inspire me to want to do some sort of rhythmic thing with them or against them. I, I, uh, I know there's a few tracks on, on that CD where uh, I really felt inspired rhythmically to, to do some, 
from cross-rhythm sorts of things. Uh, and that's where, uh, I'm not even sure that I could tell you what it was. It's more of a thing that I just kind of feel. Um, but I find myself going into that kind of thing regularly. It, it makes me, uh, I guess it's one of my musical devices, but if it tunes in 4-4, four, four, I might have a, a rhythmic, a rhythmic kind of theme, like the content, the harmonic and melodic content can change over the top, but the, the, uh, the actual rhythmic, melodic rhythmic part that I'm playing might be in, say, a 5-4 rhythm, or maybe a 7-8 rhythm, or maybe a 7-4 rhythm, and, and so you've got the rhythm section that's playing in, say, a 4-4 four, four time, but I might be feeling something in 5-4 or 7-4, and, and that creates this very kind of over-the-bar-line cross-rhythmic sort of feel. And uh, there are a number of instances that uh, I can't say I pre-planned any of that stuff. It's, I just found myself going into it, and um, certain drummers, certain grooves, certain groups that I play with will kind of inspire me to go in, in that direction. And... Uh, it shows up on, in a number of places on that CD. Um, so it really just depends um, um, with the group that I'm playing with. Um, recently here in Colorado, I've been doing a number of gigs with um, drummerless trios. Uh, the context has been uh, piano and bass. And uh, I really, up until recent, hadn't been playing in that configuration much at all. Pretty much every gig I've done has had a drummer, and so I found a lot of my inspiration through uh, the rhythmic aspect of, of the drummers and, and interplay with them, but uh, recently I haven't had drummers on some of these gigs, and and it feels very different. It's a very different space to be living in because uh, you don't have the wash of cymbal that kind of tends to cover up uh, a lot of the space. I find that there, there tends to be a lot more empty holes when, when you don't play with a drummer. And um, everyone, you start to hear the drummer in all the non-drum instruments. You know, when there's not a drummer on the band, you really start, everyone starts becoming a drummer on their instrument. And so rhythmically, because there's so many more holes to be filled up, um, you play differently. <laughs> So I've been finding some cool inspiration playing drummerless uh, trios, just, and that's just in the last few months. So, uh, uh, there's all kinds of uh, places we could go on this subject, but uh, I'll end it with that. <laughs> okay, cool. Do you have time for one last question, or am I catching? Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. cool. Yeah, it's funny. I haven't. I don't think I've gotten through like one third of the questions I had for you. So, I know we could go on with this for a long time. But um, if I had to close uh, with one last question, I was wondering is um, what I was wondering is, let's say I'm looking to become a full time professional sax player. What, like, what do you consider the prerequisites for me to? to make it, you know, in terms of specific skills, maybe personality traits, maybe just some of the basic things I would need to have built into me to make it as a pro? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, and it's a, 
we could talk about this for a long time. Um, I think that one angle of answering that question is, you know, just look at the the pop industry. Um, there isn't always the emphasis on talent as there is on marketing and um, commercial appeal. And so as far as making it um, as a musician, uh, I don't, in, in one aspect, I think if you're just in the right place at the right time with the right amount of money and backing, um, anybody can make it. Um, um, there are all kinds of musicians that I've seen all around the nation, all around the world that, um, you know, you can bring your subjectivity to it and say, well, I don't like this, or I do like this, this is incredible. Why isn't this person famous? Or this is terrible. Why is this person famous? And so I think we kind of run into a little bit of a, a subjective wall in that, um, there aren't really defined criteria for what it is that you need to have in order to make it. I, I think that um, you have to define what making it is, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, um, where you might be supporting yourself doing something else, but you're making it as a musician because you're playing you once a month down at the local coffee shop, and uh, that's that's it for you. You get together with some friends, and you're playing some tunes that you love, and uh, and that's making it. That's your definition of making it. And and yet someone else might really be passionate about uh, wanting to uh, move to New York and play with some of the famous guys there and, and make recordings and uh, go on tours and. And something like that might you might have to look well what what goes into making that what you have to look and say, well, the guys that are doing that already, what is it that they have that I don't have and uh, uh, a lot of a lot of this just boils down to uh, you've got to you've got to know what is required on your instrument uh, to play the kind of music that you want to play. And then you've got to know other people who do that as well and start hanging out with those people. Um, I know a fair amount of people who are absolutely incredible and yet they really don't share that talent with anyone because either they have some sort of inferiority complex and they don't feel that they're good enough because they hold themselves to such a high standard that they may never achieve that in their life. And, and so out of that fear, they end up staying locked in their practice room, always achieving, trying to achieve the unachievable excellence that they think they have to be at in order to share themselves with the world. And um, it's like in order for them to make it, musically, they've got it as far as my opinion is concerned. What they need is, they just need to start getting out there and, and um, sharing this stuff with other people. And if the right person hears them and says, hey, I want you to play with me or I want you to record for my company, then uh, they will be able to share a lot of their greatness with the world. Uh, 
other people I feel are on the opposite extreme of that and and they really don't know their instrument very well at all and yet they're fearless and they just want to get out there and play music for people um, no matter what <laughs> even if they're not as good as anyone else they want to go out there and, and other people learn that way so I think it's really a very subjective individual um, matter for for everybody that being said uh, I've been doing a fair amount of thinking about this uh, I think there is a certain amount of objectivity with music in that um, you know how do you say that this person is better than this person or this person is a better more competent musician than this person how do you say that is it fair to say that and um, and I've been toying with the idea that I, I think there are a certain amount of skill sets that any musician should uh, develop uh, in order to be free uh, creative, creatively. Because I, I think you want to know your instrument. You don't want to be limited by your inst instrument. You want your instrument to just be a tool for your inner creativity. And if you don't have certain things developed, then, uh, then you always kind of be a slave to uh, your inabilities on your instrument. So. I mean, these are basic things that any good teacher can help you develop, you know, learning your scales and your chords and making sure you know the tunes that you need to know. Um, it really depends on what kind of music it is that um, you want to pursue. If you're a classical musician, it's, it's a lot more objective in that, you know, certain symphony orchestra, orchestral auditions, you know, you call ahead and say, hey, what is it that you're your audition is going to entail, and, and it's usually a certain amount of standard repertoire, excerpts from standard repertoire, and it's very easy to kind of objectively say, okay, this is what I need to know in order to play at that level. And you go to a teacher that's competent and say, this is what I need to learn, teach it to me, and, and, then, and then just learn it. But I think it's interesting that the, the question, you know, how do you objectify certain basic skills? Like, I, I think of programs like North Texas State, Eastman, uh, you know, North Texas State comes to mind, you know, they're a huge jazz department. They've got all these big bands, and and uh, every semester they audition hundreds of people to place them in these big bands. And it's like, how do you do that so quickly as a, as a uh, adjudicator, you know, what a great task, and, and and I think there's a certain amount of objectivity to be able to say, yeah, this person is is more skilled than this person, this person is more skilled than this person, but all of that being said, at a certain point, once you've achieved a certain amount of objective musical skills, it, in my opinion, it really goes into the, the world of subjectivity. I mean, how do you say that a certain player at a certain level is better than a certain player? <laughs> it's really like the battle of religions. I mean, how do you say, you know, my religion is better than yours? I mean, you can't say that. It's dealing with belief systems. And I think music, in the sense of it being a religion in sense, it comes down to that um, a certain point of subjectivity where it's like, 
mean, you know, both these religions are great. It's just they differ in these in these different places. Or both these jazz musicians are great. It's just that they are different, and so it it just makes me laugh how certain people get heated about oh, such and such player is so much better than this player, and like how can you say that? <laughs> uh, you're just telling me what uh, what you like in music at a certain point it's just uh, you know certain players do certain things to people that they like or uh, that they like more in, uh, over other things in in different players so mm-hmm. I think it's uh, it, it comes down to music it kind of re- reflects so many other uh aspects of our belief system. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if that's the answer you were intending on, on getting with that question, but um, yes, there, there's definitely a certain 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 amount of things that you want to get together as a player before you kind of get out there into the world, um, in my opinion. But um, if you're fearless and you've got something to say and you don't have much training at all, then definitely just get out there and do it. I mean, some some of the greatest musicians in the world uh, had very little training. I, I think of the Beatles, you know, watched a documentary on them one time and, and, and you know, they, they knew enough to um, play their instruments, but their true genius came out of their songwriting and their ability to kind of groove together, even with what limited musical abilities uh, they had. I mean, early on anyway, they developed into these incredibly musicians over their time together uh, mm-hmm. because their instruments were just vehicles for this great resource of creativity that was inside of them yep well cool that's yeah that's a lot of great information definitely um, enlightening as far as the process of moving from student to pro and I, I can't thank you enough it's just some amazing information we got today so so the last thing I want to do I'm going to leave uh, the podcast with a track off your new CD and I didn't ask you which one so if you had to pick one tune to uh, leave the listeners with off pulling your own strings which one would it be? Oh Okay, so we'll end with pulling your own strings on Ricky's new CD called, but you know, by the same name, pulling your own strings on Origin Records, and you can find all about, find out all about Ricky and download uh, songs or the entirety of his album at his website, which is rickyswum.com. It's going to be a tough one to spell. It's R I C K Y S W E U M. Dot com, and I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. So that's about it. Thanks so much, Ricky, and uh, we'll uh, be talking to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye.